Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are in that stretch of verses that in, during which uh, Rashi is oddly quiet, right? Um, and we've gotten through a few of them. This is all the way, it's really the, the last set of verses of the fourth book of um, Exodus, of, uh, of the Torah. Sorry, the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus of Shemot. So it's also the last four verses, four or five verses of the sixth Aliyah of Parshat Shemot. And for many of these verses, we'll share at least one commentary from a different source just to add some color um, to the to the flow of ideas as we go through the scene. And this is the scene that links the scene of uh, Moshe and Sipora and the circumcision that saved a life and um, the scene of uh, Pharaoh and of Moshe and Aaron actually um, beginning the whole story of the Exodus. So that's where we are. Um, I don't, um, I'm, I, I don't know if we actually read verses 28 or 29. I remember, uh, pulling up some commentaries on it, but I don't remember if we actually did. Anyone have a note as to whether or not we concluded verses 28 or 29 in chapter four? One of you usually keeps really good notes. I may have, I have a mark that says um, that says March 9th is to start with the beginning of 29. I always make note of when, what we're going to do that next week. Okay, so let's do that. Let's read verse 28 quickly to get into the flow, and then we'll start with a closer look on 29. Verse 28. Moshe Haggadad spoke, that's the root, to Aaron. And we said how in, in the Hebrew syntax, uh, we're, we're missing a, a connecting word. He said, "At kol divrei Adonai asher shlacho." He told Aaron about this kind of a missing about um, all of uh, the things of the of the of the deeds of God or the words of God who had sent Moshe. Viet kol and all about the wonders, right? The signs that Moshe is going to be sent with into Egypt. Asher Sivahu. And then again, there's a missing with which Moshe had been sent. Okay. So we have a reunion in verse 27 where they meet each other. In 28, Moshe tells Aaron what's happened. And now we get to uh, 20, uh, verse 29. Any Anything to pause on or mark on before we jump into verse 29? Okay. Uh, Joel, do you want to read verse 29? Are you available to read? Yeah, my camera's not working for some reason. Okay. Okay. Moshe, along with Aaron, went and gathered the um, elders of Israel. Simple. Seems pretty simple. Okay. Um, the words, the the, uh, the vocabulary is simple, right? to move. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's if we wanted to linger on it, it's interesting that it's Moshe and Aaron are the subjects of the Vayelech, but the Vayelech is singular. Right? It doesn't say Vayelchu Moshe Viharon. We've seen this before, as if it's to say Vayelech Moshe. Moshe went, and along with him was Aaron. It's a singular verb, even though two of them are going. Vayasfu. It's kind of the um, 
the he feel of the root um, to 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 gather. It's to like to to it's to make other people gather to gather up right. Et kol Israel, all of the elders of the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, literally. Rick, hi. Uh, just a a trope thing. So um, when the Munach and the Zakir Katon are on the same word, I think it intensifies it. It it uh, makes it more uh, concentrated. And um, to go with the word to gather, by the way, but um, that's a side thing. So. Um, why is it so important that they that they're gathered together? They couldn't gather themselves, or was that you know um, that you you could play off of that if you wanted to? Um, I do know that later on, when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, that the elders are supposed to be there, but then they're not. They they uh, fritter away. They they um, they slink away because they're afraid of Pharaoh. So maybe this is a a precursor to that? I don't know. And the first thing Rick refers to is that most of the time, 99% of the time, every individual Hebrew word in the Torah has its own trup. Sometimes there's one trup for two words. Sometimes when there's a hyphen, sometimes there's two trups for one word. Why that is the case? Go ask Moshe, right? It may have to just do with, um, with music and meter. Uh, and it may not be about content and emphasis, but it may be. And what Rick points out is if you look at the fourth word in Hebrew, the word after the adachta, vaya asfu, they gathered, has two trups on it. Has a munach underneath the aleph, has a katon above the fe, and so you sing two full musical notes. And again, in trup, each musical note is more than one actual note, right? Each two musical groupings of notes and one word. Vayelech moshev yaron vaya right? A lot of people would kind of elide that and, and, and sing it through more quickly, but it's one word getting two trap notes to it. Um, good. Before we go to Elon, I wanted to show you the Aramaic just because sometimes it's interesting to see how, um, how, how, how roots that you know of, but you haven't thought of in that context uh, actually were normal Aramaic words way back when. So va'azal. I, Aleph Zion Lamed is just the Aramaic word to go. But Azal Moshe Aaron, Moshe went to Aaron. Uchnashu, they Beit Knesseted, right? The Beit Knesset, a synagogue, is a house of gathering. In in first century spoken Aramaic, the word for gather was to kanas. Um, we don't use it that way in Hebrew anymore, except for um, remnants of it, like a Beit Knesset. Right and of course the Knesset in Israel, and whom did they gather? Yatkol, all of the Save, all the Sabas. Right, originally Saba and Safta were not um, uh, personal names for your grandmother or grandfather, which they are now, but simply the Aramaic word for an elder. So Save is a proper translation of the Hebrew Zikne, and then it became the name for the person in your life who represents that age and, sag- and sag- sagacity. Is that the right pronunciation? Um, good. Uh, Ilan and Tova, and then I forgot, I actually wanted to show you one commentary by the Chizkuni on the previous verse. So we'll go backwards, but let's linger on this verse first. Ilan? Yeah, it's just something that, that strikes me. Um, I, just like, I, just like, I just like these two words together, and there may be nothing to it, which is I like the juxtaposition of Zikne and Benet. Um, and there may be no meaning to that, but it's 
um, the elders of the children. There's something, there's something about that, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> Thanks, Elon. Yeah. Um, now that I'm looking, now that I'm seeing it, I can't unsee it, right? So it makes perfect sense because B'nai Israel is a two-word phrase referring to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel have elders, so it makes sense to refer to the elders of the people of Israel, but you're right that the Hebrew words for the people of Israel are the sons of Israel, and so you have in juxtaposition Ziknei B'nai, the, 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 the oldest of the youngest, right? The elders of the children. Um, interesting in terms of the trup there, the, 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 the two trups on those two words are disjunctive, as if it's, you know, as if it's to say, it's the elders, comma, of the children of Israel, so that we're, we're not too focused on Ziknei B'nai. Vayasafu ekol Ziknei B'nai Yisrael. Um, but when, when, once you see that there, the, el, the elders of the youngers, it's hard not to see. So thanks for highlighting that. Tova. Um, <clears throat> just following up on your note that Vayelek is uh, singular and has been explained to refer to Moshe and then Aharon also came. It's also then interesting that the Ya'asfu is plural. It's as if, yes, Moshe had to initiate, Moshe had to go to begin this process, but once he's there and they're together, it required both of them to gather the elders. And, and you begin to see the importance of that team, if you will, of that, the, of Aharon also. That's a, it's a great read. Tova, right? The the first verb is singular, but once Aaron's name is mentioned, they're doing what's next. It's it's going to um, remember that when we get to the, a commentary, I'll share with you on the first line of the next verse. We're going to go backwards to twenty eight, but eventually we'll get to thirty because we're, we're you know we're at the very beginnings of the partnership between Aaron and Moshe. And it's a real partnership. And we learned about the partnership back in the burning bush because of, of, of Moshe's apparent or, per, or self-perceived deficiency. So he's going to be reliant on Aaron. Um, and yet when, this, when, 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 they, when they actually go to meet the people the first time, first it's a singular Moshe. Uh, and it's not until three words later that they're both involved. So that's really interesting. I, I've always picked up on the Vayelech, but I never thought to contrast the Vayelech with the Vayasfu. So wonderful, Tova. Um, good. I want to go back to um, the previous uh, verse and just share with you a comment or two on it. Uh, so let me just share the screen. Okay. So um, on the previous verse, that Moses said to Aaron, told Aaron all the things that God had God had, it's interesting, it's hard to translate. All, he, it's not the things that God had sent him. It was almost like all of the words with which God had sent him. And all of the signs that he commanded him. And the Chizkuni, which I know is one of Larry's favorites, tries to fill in. Uh, what's that kol? Um, uh, this word kol is very interesting. He told him everything. Is, is, is Every detail of the encounter in the burning bush, everything since they've, they, they last saw each other. Chizkuni says, Moshe told Aaron everything that happened to him. And that originally he had um, um, uh, brought his wife with him. Something tells me we started reading this last week, last time. 
Aaron said, we, almost, the, the words literally mean on the earlier ones, we are distressed. What it means colloquially is we have enough Jews stuck in, in enough Hebrews stuck in Egypt now. Why did you even consider bringing your wife back? Lahavdil is like saying, I'm, you know, uh, telling the Jewish agency you're bringing Jews into Ukraine, right? Jewish agency says we have plenty of Jews in Ukraine that we need to get out. Don't bring more into Ukraine right now. By the way, amazing front page article in the LA Times about, um, Really, the raison d'etre, if you'll ask me, of, of of the state of Israel for all of its complex uh, um, challenges and pockmarks, the fact that we have a place to bring Jews in distress uh, still, to me, um, is is beyond the realm of miracle. And that Jews, uh, people who have nowhere else to go, are coming to the land of Israel to start their lives over again. And therefore, we can say based on words of our sages, Shemisham Shalachla, that it's from that point, it's that point in the um in 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 this part of the story, this is when Moshe, like we don't see it in the scene, went back to Tsipora, Shishalakla, Shitashu Levetavia, that she should go back to her father's home. Right. And this connects to, let's see if I can pull it up very quickly, um even though it's not linked, it's connected in language to the, some of the opening lines of Parsha Yitro. Um, and you'll see that in a second. Okay. So um, in the second verse of Parsha Yitro, Vayikach Yitro, Yitro, who is Chotein Moshe, the father-in-law of Moshe, took Tsipora, Moshe's wife, Eshet Moshe, Achar Shiluchaha, after she had been sent home. After her sending, we have no pshat in the Torah that, that tells us about Tzipor being sent anywhere. We have the weird scene with the flint and the, and the circumcision. And then we have Aaron and Moshe in Egypt. And we can presume all sorts of things about how she got from there, that, that night encampment, back to Midian, such that when Moshe returns, Yitro comes out to greet him with his wife. But I believe that when Chizkuni says in our verse... Um, Misham uh, Shalachla. This is the moment. Misham means from from there, but I think it means from then, really, from that moment. After Aaron said to Moshe, "Ah, uh-uh, don't bring your family into Egypt." That's when he sent her back to 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 wait out the war, as it were, in her father's home. I thought that was an interesting connecting thread for his. Okay. Um, good. Uh, anything else on verse uh, twenty? Oh, I said I was going to give you a commentary in verse 30 also. Um, uh, verse 29, excuse me. No, I, I had the commentary in verse 28. I got nothing, I got nothing on, tw- on 29. Verse 29 is one of the... If, I'll, I'll show you why I have nothing on 29. If you open up in Safari... Um, here, I'll, I'll show you while I'm doing it. Book of Shemot, chapter 4, verse 29... Commentary. It's what if you scroll down here, it's amazing how many people are quiet. Rashi, nothing to say. Ramban, nothing to say. Sforna, nothing to say. Barbara, nothing to say. All the fact that it's in it's in grayscale means that there's no comment. So it, it's it's I can't remember the last time I clicked on a verse in Torah and all of these uh, commentators who wrote linear commentaries in the Torah are quiet. And even Chizkuni, which we don't even have in our book. If you look at our book, there's no comment by the Chizkuni in verse 29. He, he basically gives a, 
uh, a two-word commentary defining what an elder of Israel is, and it's in brackets. We're not even sure if it's attributed to him. So everyone went to sleep on verse 29 in the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. Okay, uh, let's go to verse 30. Let's give it uh, to you again, Joel, since uh, you, you know you, you barely had to grind your teeth on 29. Oh, so um, Aaron um, told all the things or all the words um, that God had told Moshe, and he did the signs in front of the eyes of the people. Good. So, so Aaron not only was speaking, he was actually doing the signs too. Right. So if you just look at the progression, verse 28, Moshe tells Aaron all the stuff. Verse 29, Moshe and then Aaron gathers the people. And in verse 30, Aaron tells the elders, presumably, all the stuff that Aaron had been told just two verses before. In verse 28, we can play around with, with the timing. Is it was, was this immediate? You know, how much time did Aaron have to process, you know, that whole scene by the burning bush? But already by verse 30, Aaron is already in the role that he was predicted to be in in the burning bush, right? He's already the dover. He's already the speaker. And he's also the doer, right? He's the, he's the articulator of the narrative. And he is the oseh. He's the oseot. He's the one who is actually making the science happen. As we'll see in the progression of the 10 plagues, some of them are actually initiated by Aaron. Some of them are initiated by Moshe. It seems to be in the burning bush that what God and Moshe are most concerned about is Moshe's ability to speak not Moshe's ability to do the magic tricks, as it were. But here in this scene, at least vis-a-vis the elders, Aaron is telling the story, explaining them what happened, and the one using the staff to do the three tricks that Aaron wasn't taught how to do, Moshe was taught how to do. But Moshe has downloaded all that to Aaron. Aaron's in the role now of acting that out. Rick? Another trope thing. All right. (laughs) The et for Moses is more subdued. It's the tevir, but the et for Aaron is yativ. It's, it's bold. It's, it's uh, decisive. Like Aaron can speak better than uh, Moses can. So you've got et before the kol divrei or et before the kol hadvarim. Right. So if, if, uh, if you look Aaron's at, is more intense. If you look at the third word of verse 30, there's a trup sign that depending on which book you're in, Sometimes the shape of the trumpet is exactly the same. If it's anywhere else in a word, it's called a mapach, right? It's like a, it's like a greater than sign. But if it's kind of before the first letter, it's called a yativ. It's an entirely different trump. Um, in some tikkuns and some chumashim, they're actually written slightly differently. So it's not just a placement in the word. A narrower, and, yeah. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a very intense, high-pitched sound i remember i think i may have told the story before that when um my mother became an adult bat mitzvah in 1981 for a year i was like eight or nine years old we just heard her practicing torah and half torah trap throughout the house and my mother can sing fine but she doesn't have you know the greatest voice and she couldn't get the yativ she just it every ever time ever she tried to like to get that high note of yativ it was like off by a little bit so yativ the way i learned it is so it's 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 my park, Pashtamuna Katon, It's very high and it's even yeah. somewhat more shrill in Haftarah. And I have a memory of my mother 
walking through the house going, Yativ, 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 like breaking windows in, in Woodbridge, Connecticut. But yes, so the way you would lay in this verse is you start off, Vaidaber Aharon, eight, and it's even higher than that, Kohad Varim, oh, and it's interesting, it's on a word that doesn't get translated either, right? In right. Hebrew, in, in, in English, there's no way to translate eight. It's just the connector denoting a, a direct object and much more, much bigger than the et three, two verses above where Moshe is telling Aaron, it's just et, a kind of soft, very good, Rick. Um, okay, anything else on the plain meaning of these words? Joel? Well, I... Besides Rick's interpretation, it could be a pun on the word et. A pun on the word et? Yeah. And it's talking about the signs. He's oh, eight, emph- oh. emphasizing the et of the of the oh, I see, because it's eight, eight and oat. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um yeah, I never thought about that. I I don't think there's an etymological connection, but it doesn't mean there isn't a uh, there isn't a, a, a homophone connection between eight and oat. Great. Anyone else? Okay. So I want to show you a commentary in this verse also. This is Ibn Ezra. Those of you who have the Torah Chaim Chumash have it in front of you. Vayedaber, right? So Ibn Ezra lingers on the fact that a verse before, Aaron was just learning all of this news for the first time, and already he is the do, one doing the vayedabering, the speaking. Kihu hamelitz. He is the, it's translated here as mouthpiece, the interpreter. Anyone remember where we saw me, the word melitz before in the Torah? Joseph and uh, translating uh, before his brothers with Good. his son, yes. When the brothers come to visit Joseph, they speak. Jo- Joseph kind of feigns not being able to understand their language. There was a who melitz benotam. There was an interpreter in between them, so something to do with um, um, transmitting language. Kiyua melitz al al Moshe lodiber in Yisrael. Therefore, Moses did not speak to the Jewish people leolam ever. Rak al yedei aharon only vis-a-vis Aaron. Uvamoto, and when Aaron dies, because Aaron dies before Moshe, Hayak Mochen Melitz Tachtav, there had been an assistant Melitz who was waiting in the wings, Eliezer Beno, um, Eliezer Moshe's son. So um, what Ibn Ezra is doing on this verse is jumping from the fact that Aaron is being put right into this role now to make a midrashic um, um, kind of expansion and say, you know, reader, all those times where it said where Moshe is speaking to the Jewish people on the top, you know, the golden calf, or regarding this uh, scene or that scene, he is never talking, right? Ezra is saying that this Vayedaber of Aaron is not just a single event; it's a paradigmatic um, example, right? So Moshe has told Aaron everything he needs to know. By verse thirty, Aaron is speaking, and reader Ibn Ezra wants us to know, understand that to be the case. Every time Moshe is speaking to the Jewish people, it's never Moshe speaking. It's always this pattern. Moses telling Aaron what he needs to say, and then Aaron spoke, even if the Torah says, Moshe El Ha'am. 
um, an interesting jump to make it clear that Moshe's role was very circumscribed and in some ways giving more emphasis or more body to the scene that we had just finished, the burning bush, where Moshe really expresses a hesitancy to do any public speaking. Okay, uh, anything else on verse 30? Before we go to verse 31, moving right along. Eventually we'll get to a Rashi. The next, the next Rashi we'll hit will be on the first verse of the next chapter. So uh, verse after this. All right, let's switch uh, readers. Larry, are you, are you focused on Millie or, and or can you read verse 31? Um, she's okay for right now. So, okay. I mean, let me just give her a spoonful of yogurt. Can I make one comment before I, um, or a question before I read? Yeah. I didn't jump in quickly, quickly enough. I'm just comparing verses 28 and 30, which are similar, almost parallel. 28 were, uh, the Agate Moshe Aaron, um, and then 30, the Aaron, uh, um, he's speaking to the elders, and in in 28 it's at Kol Divrei Adonai Asher Shelachot, and in 30 it's at Kol Hadavar Divarim Asher Diber Adonai El Moshe. I have nothing to add about it. I just find I would have expected the structure to be almost identical, and it's slightly different. Yeah, and the contrast between those structures exposes some of the clunkiness of verse 28, right? Because again, we never know how idioms are under, how idiomatic language is used across centuries, but verse 30 makes more sense. Aaron debared all of the dvarim that God had debared to Moshe. Makes sense, right? Verse 28 is Moses hagadad, Moses spoke to Aaron, all of the things that God had sent him Right. It's again, it's all of the things through which, by which, with which there's some kind of connecting phrase that at least in English you would have to put in there in order to make verse 28 make sense. Whereas verse 30 is clearer and that uh, look how Ever Fox does that. So verse 30 and Aaron spoke to bear all the words Dvarim, which God had spoken to Moshe. Right. Simple. God spoke to Moshe. Aaron spoke all those words to the elders. Right. In verse 28. Um, and Moshe told Aaron all God's words, and he adds in, because you have to, with which he had sent him. Because it's not the words that were sent, it's the words that were sent with, uh, with Aaron as part of the sending. So not only is it not exactly parallel, the, the, the clarity of verse 30 exposes some of the oddity of verse 28. Uh, before you uh, read the next verse, bury your hands up. Uh, this is very interesting. So uh, possibly... Uh, all. You might think of all all the things with which God said, including the signs. So uh, this is where Moshe is instructing Aaron, not only by words, but also instructing Aaron how to do the signs. Yes. Good. Good. The, right. Because, because the dvarim can mean words and it can also mean things. It can, it can be a word that it can be a word that specifically means word. And it can be a word that means something more uh, comprehensive, like, and everything. Good. And it, it was things that God sent Moshe with. Yeah. Good. Okay, Larry, uh, read verse 31. Okay. Um, V'ya'amen ha'am v'yishmo'u, with an emphasis, it's about there, Rick should be chanting this, ki fagad 
Adonai et Bnei Yisrael, et Onyam or Anyan. Um, Onyam, it's a Kamatz Katan, good. Because right. it's for the word Oni, yep. Vayikdu Vayishtachavu. Okay. So, um, I guess I translated, and the, and the people believed. Okay. Um, and the people believed, and then there's a semicolon. So that's the first half. And they heard, um, with a pazer there, um, that um, Fakad, so Fakad um, enumerated, wrote down, clerked, God, 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 uh, God, God wrote down um, that the children of Israel, the, oh, that God noted the children of Israel and um, saw their oni, saw their poverty, saw their, um, yeah, their poverty. Um, and um, they, um, I'm not sure what yikdu means, but then they also bowed. They yikdu and they bowed. Right. Those are probably synonyms. They bowed and they prostrated. I mean, maybe they, they did a half bow and they did, did a full bow. Good. I love, I love your lingering over the root fakad. It's actually obviously pakad because, but because it's a beged kefet uh, word and the previous word ends in a yud, the dagesh comes out because it's a, it's a very pluripotent verb. And I love that you said that they clerked because in Hebrew, a pakid <laughs> is the guy, you know, you wait online three hours for at the, at the DMV or something to like, to do this one thing on your on on, on your document, it's a pakid. It's a a, a clerical uh, um, role. Pakad, uh, and then you tra- you you put it into he noted. Noted is a great rendering of pakad. If you look quickly at the Aramaic, um, uh, Uncleus translates pakad as dechir, are dechir. Now that may seem like an Aramaic word that you don't know, except until you remember that there are certain letters that transpose from Aramaic to Hebrew. And a Dalid in Aramaic is a Zion in Hebrew, in roots. And therefore, Dechir is Zachar, right? Like, um, um, like uh, remember, you, you might have ever, some of you may have been to Dahab in, uh, in Egypt, right? That's Zahav, the golden sands, right? That's why it's called Dahab. Right. So uh, Uncleus says pakad doesn't mean note. It doesn't mean um, record. It's not a clerical thing. It's simply the Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew word for remember, like pakad or naika sheramar, that God had remembered God's promise to Sarah to bring her a baby the, the, at the beginning of the Torah reading for first day of Rosh Hashanah. But I like the noting and the recording also, because it, it's this image of the, of the Holy One checking you know, checking the grand logs uh, to see what's going on in the world and finally getting to the page in which the Israelites only, Israelites distress is, 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 is recorded. Now let's look at that word onyam, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's a kamatz katam. It's not anyam, it's onyam. The first kamatz is an O from the word oni. And that's a appropriate word to be talking about right now because of course, matzah is lechem oni. It's the bread of, poverty or affliction of distress. Of course, the Haggadah gives many other explanations for why it's called Lechem Oni. And so the Talmud, Ayin Nun Hey also means answer. So there's a wonderful Midrash that says it's the bread over which we ask questions and give answers, right? It also brings in the great paradox of is bread slave, sorry, is, is matzah slave bread or is it freedom bread, right? Because we're told as six-year-olds 
that why would we eat matzah? Because that was the didn't have time to rise on their way out. So it should be a bread of liberation. But of course, it's also lechem oni, suggesting that's the impoverished bread that they ate while they were in Egypt. That's not what's going on here. It's just a word, but it's a word meaning the Israelites' experience in the land of Egypt. Okay. Um, any other questions that people want to raise on this verse? Andy? Not even just about this verse, but all the verses we've read today. I'm struck by the contrast between the almost like military precision of the chain of command here where everyone's getting along and is in step from God to Moshe and Aharon to B'nai Israel, contrasting that with everything that's about to come where none of the chains of command seem to be functioning well. You know, Moshe is in a leadership crisis, B'nai Israel is an open revolt. I guess there's nothing like adversity to bring everybody together. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it, it does seem to be beginning very... Um, very precisely and orderly, and then uh, chaos is going to ensue. Joanna? So first, just a quick response to Andrew, that um, in terms of like this precise structure, it's really interesting in Kaftet that there are Ziknei B'nai Yisrael, and then they seem to disappear. Like, what was their role? What were they doing? And, you know, speaking about Parshat Yitro, it highlights what, you know, it almost brings to the fore what's going to happen in Parshat Yitro, where he tells Moshe, you're not using your Zikinim to your best advantage. Like, they're here, but they don't seem to have much of a role. Right, so before, of- before you go to the next comment, so what, what, Rick, um, what Rick had said in one of his, his comments was kind of anticipating the Rashi we'll get to in the next verse, because <clears throat> Rashi's alert to the fact that that we got introduced to these Ziknei B'nai Israel, the olders of the youngers, and then they're not there. And R- Rashi is going to f- fill that in a little bit. So, um, so, so Baruch Shekivant, because you're on Rashi's wavelength as well. Keep going. And then in terms of the structure of Lamed Aleph, we often say that an Etnachta, you know, breaks a pasuk in half. But it's interesting because usually the first half of the pasuk is longer. And here it's a very short first half of a pasuk, if you will, two words until the etnachta. And I'm noticing that before the etnachta, the verb is in the singular. The nation as one unit, if you will, believed. And then from after the etnachta, it's the individuals of the nation because they're constantly referred to in the plural. Great. So if everyone picks up what Joanna's saying, the etnachta, which is the note that looks like a wishbone, is basically the fulcrum of a verse of the, of the seesaw, and it's usually more or less in the in the middle of the verse. Every once in a while, it it it, it sneaks earlier or later, and then you have some really dramatic, for at least Torah dramatic, where you have an etnachta in the second word of the verse. There are about four or five verses in the Torah where the first verse word of the verse in that etnachta, you begin at, at at a fulcrum. You begin with that you you finished the previous verse and the first word of the next verse is da like you haven't gotten there all of a sudden you're there they're also by the way the opposite there are a couple of verses in the torah where the penultimate word in the verse is netnachta and then you have a sof pasuk you get one of those in um in parshat yitro as well uh bishalach as well that uh and they did that. So there's no break between the Etnachta and the Sof Pasuk. Here, you don't have the Etnachta in the first word, but you have it in the second word. So it's a very imbalanced 
um, seesaw. So the, 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 the fulcrum is two words in, and then you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 12 or 13 words, depending on how you're counting the hyphens for the second half of the verse. And really interesting um, uh, pickup that that fulcrum determines the, uh, the, the singularity or the plural, plurality of the people who are believing and speaking. Great. Um, Alan? You're muted. Oh, you're not muted, but I still can't hear you. Can anyone hear Alan? Hmm. Alan, come back to us when you can. Uh, Rick? Okay, hi. So, um, yeah, the the great emphasis on the first part of the sentence, Moses was so worried about what the people were going to say or not, they weren't going to believe him and all that. And here they believe him as fast as they can. You, you, you can't say it in, in less words than these two uh, with very direct uh, trope. And then the, the drama of the Pazer coming next. Um, I also wanted to say uh, in Silverman, um, he has, Silverman has uh, uh, Pakadas visited uh, the children of Israel. Interesting. Um, I just wanted to let you know about that. Oh, and then uh, Vayikadu bowed their heads. Um, so I don't know where that's coming from. And then prostrated themselves is the, the last two. Um, the other thing about the Ednachta at the beginning, Rabbi, this week, um, Vayishchat, there's the Shalshelet, which starts the sentence. But before then, there's an Ednachta uh, uh, on, on Vayishchat. So the the drama builds on on that last sacrifice before Moses turns things over to Aaron in um, the Torah reading this week. Um, so it's just a coincidence, as it were. Great, and the the Vayikdu as as potentially just bowing of the head. You see that Uncle is translated as Uchra'u, the root Kuf Reish Ayin. In the Haggadah, we have Koreo Mashtachaveli that Mordechai refused to bow his head and fully prostrate himself in front of me. So, um, yeah, so this could be a, you know, just a head bow and then a fully prostrate bow. Everett Frox deals with the um, Pakad in a way that will make Larry happy, given his translation. The people trusted, he doesn't go believe. That's not what Bayamein, he doesn't go believe. They, the people trusted, comma, they hearkened that God had, here's the Pakad, taken account i love that because the taken account is like a remember but it also brings in the the clerk the, uh, the clerk role had taken account of the children of israel that he god here is masculine had seen their affliction only this is the bread of affliction and they bowed low and did homage interestingly that he doesn't say is he, he, he says the do is the bowing and the vaishtachavu is sort of their affect Whereas I would have thought Vayishtachavu was the, the full hands on the ground prostration. Maybe that's what Fox means by did homage, but did homage also suggests a, um, an attitude, not just an act. Um, there's one, I have one question on this verse that hasn't been brought up yet, but I want to see if anyone else is going to say it first. So uh, uh, Larry and then Alan. Yeah, so I'm shocked that there's not any commentary or more commentary. Maybe there's one on this, the Amen, Ha'am, and also about the um, cantillation, about the trope, the, the etnachta. 
So I guess my question first, if you translate it as you understand it, okay, and the people believed, yeah, really agrees. If you if you translate it as, as believed, which with both which both Alter and Kaplan uh, translated as believed, and not as were convinced, the question to me is, what did they believe? Now I'm going to talk in a second more about about the connection. So did they believe? in God? Did they believe in Moses and Aaron? Did they believe that they were going to be freed? Did they believe that the prophecy of of Abraham, that they would serve and then be freed? I think there's a whole lot of things here that you can riff on about what it was that they believed. Clearly, um, what's his name? Aaron ben, ben Asher, who did the troping, he thought that there should be a break between Ha'am and the rest. And that's really peculiar because the rest that they heard that God had noted their their suffering, etc., you would think that that would be what got them to believe. So the the entire pasuk should be inverted if you believe that. But no, it's not that way. And why isn't that way? Well, this is like um, this is like Nasev and Ishma, where we think we have to understand first before we do. No, we're taught that we do first and then we'll understand. And here the people are, in a sense, doing that because they're believing and then they're hearing all the reasons why they should believe. And Millie agrees. <laughs> Great. So much to say there, uh, Larry. By the way, that is indeed the question I have in the verse. The, the order of belief into hearkening, right? Because it would seem that I like your answer to it, but the question is good as well. Wouldn't, shouldn't it be by Yishmu'uki Pakad Israel? That because they heard that God would take note of them, they started to have belief in this God, right? So this is, it could be a pre Naaseven Ishma. I think it also goes into the unresolvable wormhole as to what the word believe means. What do we believe about the word believe? And what do we believe about the, what the word believe means now? And what do we believe about the word believe means then? And does Vayamein even mean believe? Which is why Everfox goes to trust, because to trust is different than belief, right? Um, I once heard a wonderful lecture by Micha Goodman at the Hartman Institute saying that everything that one, that one thinks and says about the, the verb believe rests on what word follows the word believe. Because believing in is very different than believing that. Um, there's there's a certain belief that in the Jewish tradition, right? That's the Yigdal. That's Maimonides' 13 principles, that I believe that Mashiach will come. I believe that there's only one God. I believe that Moshe was Moshe, was was, Moshe, uh, was God's only prophet. There's certainly a lot of belief that in Islam, right? There's certainly a lot of belief that in Christianity. In fact, it's through those core beliefs that one gets salvation. Judaism, Micha Goodman would argue, despite the Rambam's like pithy list is much more a belief in religion, right? And that we have, we're, we're less a religion of a credo, right? Belie- believing certain statements and more a trust, right? If you, if we're playing with English, a trust in a world that is not random in a creator that, um, that is part of reality and, and our response to that um, emuna. 
not that belief that, but that belief in, is to live a life of commitment, to live a life of, 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 of mitzvot. So you could micha Goodman this verse and say, since the people were a believing people, or a trusting people, they paid attention, they listened, they, they, they took heed of the fact that God was listening to them. If they were not a trusting people, they wouldn't have paid any attention to that. But the belief came first, right? And, and you could play a, a, around a lot with that in terms of our own belief statements and certainly in, 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 um, in how people relate to each other and how the, the trust in the other person actually stimulates the action that's going to come next, not only that the actions are what build and rebuild the trust. So there's a lot to be said there, and I'm glad you raised it. Let me just show you that um, uh, but that uh, Ibn Ezra is sensitive to that as well, and then we'll go to Alan and Tatova. Um, so, Vayamein Ha'am, Achar Sheshamu Kifakad Adonai Amo, right? So the Ibn Ezra basically agrees with your question, Larry, but not your answer, and he says, you're right, it's inverted. The verse begins with they believed, but I'm here to tell you that they believed after that they had heard that God had remembered them. It was actually because they heard that belief was even possible, right? Not that, um, not, not, not your, not, not your read, right? He's raising the same question you're raising and just saying, katani. let's just reverse those ideas in the verse. Okay. Uh, Alan Tova Joanna. Um, uh, what? Hang on. Okay. You can, can you hear me now? We can hear you now. All right. Um, God bless the phone. I I want to follow up on this because I, I was concerned about this with this etnachta as well. If you if you don't have the etnachta there, it's just one one sentence, one thought. Then it is, and the people believed when they heard that the Lord had taken note of the Israelites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here, when the, with the Ednafta there, when you say, and the people believed, it says, well, they believed when they saw the signs, because that's what preceded it. But it's only, it's a, that Ednafta there makes a huge difference in how you're going to view the, the Pasuk. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Great. Right. It, 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 it specifically, um, divides between the belief and the, and the hearkening and the listening to. Great. Tova? Uh, this is really echoing on what uh, Larry and Alan said, uh, though I was a little bit more focused on the Pazer, which amplifies and, if you will, works together with the Etnakta. You've cut off this first part, and now you're emphasizing that. Uh, that one, it echoes for me that this is presaging the our central credo, Shema Yisrael, but mm. also that understanding of the difference between listening and hearing, and that this Shema is that at some level, B'nai Yisrael totally, deeply takes in that God is with them, God is now with them, and that there's there's an intensity to that, uh, and that the Pesera is, is indicating that. I love that comment, Tova, because if I, you know, in my hubris had to retrap the verse, I'd put the Pesera on the Vaya Amen. Not the Vayishmu, right. because yeah. the Vayishmu yeah. seems more prosaic. Ah, they heard they got to remember them, right? But and then they believe. But you're yeah. saying that that I, I love the connection to, to to the Shema that's coming up, but it's it, a- amplifying what it means to take heed of, I don't know, divine hints that are 
divine communications that are out there rather than ignoring them, right? And for those of you who, who don't know what the word Pazer means, if you look at the, kind of the backwards four over the word of Ayishmu, it's maybe the second most uh, musically dramatic note after a shalshel. It's only four shalshel. It's in the Torah. There are many, many more Pazers, but it's very, very dramatic. We've done this before. Um, the way uh, I was taught to do a Pazer would be, by Amen Ha'am, by um that's how I was taught to do it. The way uh, our kids are taught to do it at, at, at Pressman and the way Rick teaches it is a little bit less, um, a little bit, you know, less of a mountain peak. Uh, Rick, do you want to sing by your, by your, your pase there? It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And the way my kids learned it is even, it's a, uh, so it's still up and down, but still it, it's, it's a peak. It's a Matterhorn. Um, and I love Tova, your, your, your explanation for why the Vaishmu specifically does deserve that trump. Good. Uh, Joanna, your hand was up and now it's down. I assume that what we were going to say was covered. Uh, let me know if that's not the case. Joel. The way I saw it going was Aaron starts off by saying, listen, people, um, God came to Moshe and said, yada, yada, yada. And so they could, they could say, okay, yeah, right. Sure. Or they could believe and then listen to what he's, to what he's saying. So that's why I thought they, you enter a conversation, either believing or being cynical. And so in this situation, they immediately believed him off the bat and then they listened to what he had to say. Great. Great. Uh, with that in mind, let me share with you the screen one more time before we finally get to Rashi on the next verse, which may not happen today. I want to share with you um, a, a bunch of short comments by the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who wrote his commentary called the Ha'amek Davar. This is late 19th century Volosian, Lithuania. Vayamein Ha'am. They trusted, they believed. Shenira Adonai Moshe. So, he says that it's not a belief in it to believe that. What do they believe? They believe that Moshe was telling them was true, right? They trusted that, yes, God indeed had appeared to Moshe. Even though it's a weird thing to believe, that's a miraculous thing to believe. This is not a people that have been have had God revealed to them, right? This is not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is this enslaved people. They're told an unbelievable thing that one of theirs who's half Egyptian, half Israelites, met God in the desert, and God revealed God's self, and they believed. They believed that story. Vayishma'u, and again, even in the translation of, it, 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 like, even as how you translate Vayishma'u impacts, obviously, your understanding of it. They hearkened, they listened, they heard. Right? Not the inverse of what Larry said. By means of, no, I've, already, I've actually gotten confused who said what. Because they believed, yes, because they believed, because they trusted the story, Shamu, they, they paid attention. Had they thought that Moshe was telling a tall tale, had they thought he was nuts, had they thought, frankly, what we would think if someone came to us today and said, God spoke to me, we wouldn't show Maya. We wouldn't pay heed. That's like the irony of, of us being modern religionists studying the story. If someone came and said they had a profound personal encounter with the Holy One, we would not vaya amen. We would not necessarily believe them, and we wouldn't listen to the thing they had. They said next, but the Hamek Davar says because the Israelites did indeed believe it was a 
believable story. They took heed. Kipakad, uh, uh, that God had remembered them, Lahotziam uh, to bring them out to freedom. That one is not as interesting. Um, so he separates between God's pokating, remembering, and God's roeing, seeing. In what way did God see their affliction? Lehina came al inuyehem. God, by seeing their affliction, God committed once God's self to be, um, Lehina came to take vengeance on their affliction. And then I like what he does here on Vayikduva Yishtachavu, rather than just understand it as two words for emphasis and intensive, he suggests each of these paying homages and prostrations refers to two different things. Vayikdu, Alhagaula, I'm separating that. They, they, they bow their heads for the redemption that was coming by Ishtachavu, and they prostrated themselves, Alhanekama, take vengeance on the Egyptians. It's really a powerful comment, right? You could just jump over the saying they, um, in, in two ways, they showed their instant obeisance to God by bowing down. Hamektavar says no, right? They were holding on to two different sets of emotions, right? We want to be free and we want our enemies crushed. We want to be out of bondage and we want them to pay for it, which is an urge that, you know, in many places in the Jewish tradition, we try to tamp down, right? Think about God chastising the angels for, you know, for, for dancing at the drowning of the Israelites, uh, the Egyptians. And think of our limiting our wine when we, when we uh, pull it out for the plagues. Amektavar is going right to what a very normal human experience is. If you are enslaved, right, you want probably two things to be free and for your enslavers to, to be punished. Um, and so that's what he reads into Vayikdu and Vayishtachavu. thought that was worthy of bringing to you. Okay. Uh, we have time to, unless there are other comments, to begin to read the verse. We will not get the, to the Rashi till next time. And next time is in two weeks. Next week, um, I don't think there's class at all because Leonard is going to be with me on the trip to the South. So no class next week. I'll send an email out to remind people. Um, we'll meet again in two weeks. And I'm sorry for this every other uh, week rhythm for a while. It's just a weird, weird stretch we're in right now. Okay, whom have we not heard from? Uh, Renee, do you want to read the first verse of chapter five, which is also the first verse of the seventh Aliyah of Parshat Shmot? We're getting there, folks. Um, Okay. So after um, Moshe and Aaron came, they said to uh, they said to Pharaoh, uh, "So says Hashem, uh, the God of Israel, who sent out my people into the uh, wilderness." And what's oh, the for, for me to celebrate? For me to celebrate, right? For them, for them to celebrate me, they will hug me. They will yantif me. They will make a hug for me in the wilderness. Good. Um, and the, the the first word is a curious one, viachar, because are we supposed to? We know what the word achar means. It means after. But is it vaachar ba'u Moshe viharo, meaning after they came, or is it somehow viachar, meaning and? Afterwards, right? Me, right? You know. In meantime, look at how uh, Uncleus translates. He adds, he turns achar into batar, which is just the Aramaic for after, and he adds in a cane. Achar cane. Achar cane is would be an afterwards, right? As if there is a uh, a very 
a long, a long comma after Viachar. Um, by the way, Ba'u has another one of our Yativs, right? So a lot of in, intensive note. Viachar, Ba'u, Moshe, Viaharon. So it's trapped in a way to suggest that the Viachar is not after they came, but and afterwards, after all this had taken place. Moshe and Aaron came to Pharaoh, something like that, right? Because as it, as it is, Viachar could be read uh, both ways. Good. Um, Everett Fox has an interesting footnote about the whole hug thing. Okay. He says, he says, hold a festival or observe a pilgrimage festival. The Hebrew Chag is still echoed in the great pilgrimage of Islam, the Hajj, in which worshippers make long journeys to Mecca. Right, because the because the hard gimel in Hebrew is a softer j sound in Arabic. So yes, the Hajj is Yantif, Chag. It's just a um, and it's probably, do you remember, you know, the old uh, children's song, um, uh, Uga, 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 Bama, Bama, Uga. What does Nachuga mean? It means to make a circle, right? To, it, to get a circle. So it's probably called Chag because of like a ritual of of encircling the, uh, what's it called in Islam? The Kaaba, right? Um, it, it's, 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 a, it, it's a ceremonial encircling of something. So we just think of it as the word chag. It it means at its core to circumambulate uh, the the object of your worship. Okay, so we'll leave it off there. Uh, we're beginning. We begin the fifth chapter. Rashi will wake up after having uh, slumbered for a while, and he'll get to the very question that um, Joanna brought up as to where did those zakanim go. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.